In this episode, we speak with Juan Marcos Hill, a partner at Stry Consumer Partners, which is a private equity firm that focuses on investing in the next generation of great consumer brands. Founded in 2019, Stride's unique approach brings together a fully integrated team of successful investors working alongside seasoned operators to help high-growth and disruptive consumer products and services businesses hit their stride. The Stride consumer team has worked with founders and teams of BrewDoctor, Drybar, Essentia, First Aid Beauty, Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams, Sims Fishing Products, Tatcha, Urban Decay, and Yasso, among other brands. Juan Marcos's passion for founder-led business began at an early age on his family's coffee farm in El Salvador. Growing up in a family business cultivated his desire to understand the challenges of growing a business and the people behind them. Before joining Stride, he was with Castanea and Bain & Company. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Juan Marcos, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. RJ, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to have the conversation. So where I thought we'd kick off is where you focus, meaning consumer. And I'm starting there because it's not every day that we cover consumer-focused private equity. Tell us about maybe how you got into the sector. I know that you have kind of deep roots in consumer, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I mean, it was something that always was a passion of mine. I grew up in a family that was somewhat entrepreneurial in the coffee business. Consumer's always been something that's sort of close to home. Literally, to some degree, happenstance as well. When I started my consulting career, ended up staffed on a bunch of consumer-focused cases that really started gravitating towards that. Ended up looking to get into the private equity world, specifically in growth equity within consumer. And just honestly was something that I just loved. And it was one of those classic tip of the iceberg moments where you think you have a solid thought process. You think you know why you're doing things. And then with the benefit of hindsight, you realize, wow, I was really lucky because I didn't appreciate the degree to which how good a fit consumer would be with my personality and how much I would enjoy it. And so feel lucky and blessed that ended up in this industry. You know, within private equity and growth equity, the majority of firms, if you were to draw out the landscape, do not focus on consumer. And I think it's because it's tricky. It's a tougher game to assess consumer companies and which ones have true staying power. Can you give us some insight into how you're able to determine? Because consumers can be fickle. They're there one day, they're gone the next. Couldn't agree more. I mean, it's really hard, but that's why I love it. And, And that's why I think a lot of us here love doing this because it is hard. It is intellectually challenging. How do you sift through the noise and all of the trends and really understand ultimately what will the consumer care about longer term? What are brands that they really are going to gravitate towards? not just on a short-term basis, on a trial basis, because their friends are talking about it, but what are they going to get attached to? What is a brand they're going to be insanely passionate about over the long run? What are brands that have that criterion foundation that at least give them really good odds of becoming a really sustainable brand that does well over the long run? 
we're obsessed with that question. And I think for us, honestly, it starts with where you started. We think it's a very hard question and almost come at consumer investing with a significant level of paranoia, where I think it's really easy to get caught up with momentum and trends. And oh my God, this brand is growing like crazy. Everyone's talking about them. But we think that in consumer investing, there's a very significant risk of the false positive. That brand that looks amazing, it's growing, everyone's talking about them but then somehow loses the momentum and it fizzles. And I think we've been obsessed and now have spent almost 20 years trying to really understand how do we get better? You're never perfect. You're never about a thousand, but how do we get better really identifying those brands that are built the last, they've been built the right way and are growing for sustainable reasons and are going to be able to do it, not just during our investment horizon, but for longer. And that's the question that we're obsessed with trying to answer. You know, in terms of how we go about doing that, I wish we had a silver bullet, something that, oh, if you know they have a high NPS score, it's going to be a great investment. I like to joke around that if that were the case, my golf game would be a lot better. It's absolutely terrible because that question is really hard. And I think to your point, maybe the biggest reason why is because consumers are fickle. I think in a lot of cases, we're so busy, we're so distracted. I think we honestly, most times don't even know why we're making the decisions we're making, don't know why we're trying this product, don't know how influenced we've been by influencers, media, our friends, and can sometimes convince ourselves that we like something for a short period of time. And then eventually you're like, wait a minute, why have I been buying this product? It's so expensive. It's crazy. And so within that environment, what we have found is that, like I said, there is no silver bullet, but over many years, we think we've built up and continue to improve upon different ways that are a combination of some that are analytically driven and more data driven. Others are more intuition, pattern recognition, and having been around the industry for so long. And I think it's one of the reasons why we really don't focus on all of consumer. You know, even within consumer, we are hyper focused on a couple of subsegments because we do think it takes that degree of specialization to really understand the consumer, why they're making the choices they're making, and giving yourself, you know, better odds at understanding, okay, are they going to really do that for over the long run? Is there an example of maybe a brand that you saw early on and had conviction on? And you said, I'm willing to take a bet on this one. And then it worked out fabulously. I mean, there's so many. I love to go back to one of our earliest investments was Urban Decay Cosmetics. And I love that one because it's funny when the brain started, Wendy's Omner, just amazing human, great founder. When she started, the initial tagline for the company was, if pink makes you puke which is obviously interesting. And it, it went sort of with her personality being countercultural and edgy at the time and really built this amazing business. And when we invested though, I think there were a lot of people within the beauty world saying, gee, they're so edgy. You know, can this brand scale? Is this a brand that is going to resonate with a broader universe of consumers? And I think we did a lot of work to get comfortable as to who the consumer was. And yes, at the time, it was a more niche consumer, more narrowly defined. But when we tried to really understand, okay, why were they buying the product? Why were they so obsessed with the product? It had less to do with who they were and the things that made them maybe a little bit unique and more of a niche consumer. That's maybe what drove their desire to try it. But the reason why they were so loyal, the reason why they were so passionate was something that wasn't inherent to the consumer. It was more inherent to the product and how high quality it was, how high it was from a pigmentation perspective. They could see the difference. They could see the efficacy. And then started to understand, okay, are there other customers who are consumers of the product? And started to see broader concentric circles of customers who were maybe not the typical core customer, that edgy customer that you would have thought, but they were soccer moms and, and much more mainstream consumers who also love the product. 
and were just as loyal. And the reasons why they love the product were exactly the same ones you heard from the same core customer, but you heard from them, oh, but candidly, I hide it at the bottom of my purse because I don't want my girlfriends to know because I'm a 45-year-old mother and this is a product that's kind of positioned to younger adults. But what was interesting also is Wendy herself was over time maturing and also looking to maybe soften the personality of the business. And we thought it was a real good opportunity to say, hey, this is an amazing product. It's going to resonate with a lot of people as Wendy softens the positioning a little bit and makes it more approachable for more consumers. There's a lot of potential there. And luckily enough for us, amazing team. They did just such a good job of executing. That played out exactly as we hoped. But let's talk about some of the sub-segments or segments that you're focused on within CPG, and then we'll go into some trends. Sure. So just to rattle them off, food and beverage is one. Beauty and personal care is another. Active outdoor lifestyle businesses is a third. And then retail services, particularly if it has an overlap with the first three, but basically something that has a retail box, a lease, but is selling a service, not a product. And yeah, me personally, I spend most of my time in the food and beverage sector. Okay. Interesting. You know, over the years, I've looked at a lot of different beverage companies. I'm based out of Princeton, New Jersey. We have one here that some folks invested in. It did very, very well called Buy. And I do get from time to time pitches on beverage companies. What's the secret there, do you think? Like, how do you know when you've really gotten a fan favorite? That's an interesting question because in food and beverage, I think it's a hard question. I think in beverage, it's particularly harder because it is an industry that I think is harder to make money in the costly business. I mean, you know, the reality is a lot of these beverages are really heavy. They're hard to transport and they're low price point. They just tend to be lower margin businesses that at scale can be incredibly profitable, but can be expensive to get to that point of scalability and and profitability. And so for me, in some of those beverages, I think it, it really starts with the consumer. You know, why are they buying? How differentiated is the product? Is it something that it is really meeting a white space? Is it differentiated in a way where there isn't anything quite like it in the marketplace? And then, you know, how well is it doing at solving that issue? Because I think sometimes one of the things that leads to these false positives, sometimes the idea of the product is awesome. Like it resonates with like, oh my God, yes, I was missing this in my life. Let me go try it. But you try it a couple, two, three times and you're like, wait a minute the vision and what this company is pitching and the marketing doesn't live up to reality. The product doesn't meet my expectations. So that's another one. You know, Is it something that consumers gravitate to? But over time, do you see evidence that it is really working? And then also just applicability of who that customer is, particularly in beverage, like I said, you have to get to a decent size to be profitable. And so can you get to that size? And can you get to that size with a broader consumer because there have been a lot of beverage brands that do really well when they're small because they're doing a phenomenal job of addressing an issue that is a real pain point, but for a small niche of consumers. And then when they start to get bigger and they try to expand, they're forced to acquire and attract a slightly different consumer that maybe is buying for different reasons or has different tolerances. Maybe the niche consumer was more willing to sacrifice on taste because they are huge believers in clean ingredients and labels, but maybe as you get to a a slightly broader consumer, maybe they are much more focused on taste and maybe they don't love the taste of the product. And so I think that applicability of to what degree will it work with a broader consumer, I think is a, a really important question. And then, you know, margins, that's something that I think we have always been passionate about. I think the industry is becoming much more passionate about, particularly in beverage, 
you have to start with good gross margins. It's a tough industry to make money in. And ultimately, that has to be a function of, is it a differentiated enough product where consumers are willing to pay a real premium where you can make money? And I think it's something that if you're not making money on the front end, it's really hard to get there with scale. And I think there's a lot of beverage brands out there that have done well for a period of time while raising a lot of capital. But eventually, can you do that, be self-sufficient because your margins are good from the get-go? I think it's something that not in every case, but in most cases, and you see those beverage companies that have succeeded start with pretty good margins. One of the interesting trends, and I'm not sure if you deal at all in the alcohol space, but you see some amazing examples of the influence of celebrity and product placement within media, within movies, within series. You know, Ryan Reynolds, of course, with his gin company, and then Blake Lively now. Do you deal at Mm -hmm. all with these types of formats with launching? So not specifically in alcoholic beverages, that is not a category we spend a lot of time in. Like I said, we love to be very focused and we want to spend our time where we can be most helpful to founders and feel like that focus allows us to double down into areas we know best. And so alcoholic beverages is not one of those. The three-tier system makes that have its own little wrinkles for sure. But I think definitely can resonate with that on the beauty side. There are a lot of beauty brands that are celebrity-driven and influencer-driven. And I think it has been really interesting. I think a lot of worthy upstart emerging beauty brands that had grown significantly got disrupted themselves over the last five years with a lot of these influencer-led brands that just have such amazing marketing. These are just unbelievable individuals that have a lot of reach, have a great story to tell, right? In a lot of cases for them, beauty is central to what they do, whether they're a singer, an actress, whomever, you know, there's some authenticity there. And I think because of the megaphone they have, we're able to drive a lot of sales. So it's been an interesting environment for brands to compete in for sure. But it also creates this interesting environment. You know, from our perspective, I think a lot of these celebrities do an amazing job of building brands. But in some cases, they don't come to the business with the same passion and authenticity that some founders do, because a lot of founders that maybe don't have celebrity status oftentimes stumble into these roles. It's not like they say, okay, I want to build this amazing company. They really just see a void in the marketplace and start oftentimes creating something for themselves and their friends. And then they start to see that it has more applicability. And they are doing this more because they're on a mission to try to help other people that are similarly situated solve this problem or issue they've been having. And they tend to, as a result, be just obsessive about product and really obsessing about what is the void in the marketplace? How can I create a product that is a better mousetrap to address with this issue that no one else is? And I think that obsession with constantly trying to improve the product, constantly trying to understand the consumers, what are their pain points? I think ultimately yields brands or products that are both more authentic, which consumers love, but also are just fundamentally better. Where I think some of the celebrities, not all, but some have made a mistake is they say, oh, I want a beauty line. They will go to a very credible lab and say, hey, can you make a beauty line for me? And they say, yep, we have a beauty line in a box and here it is. But then the next celebrity will do the same thing and they'll give them very similar product with maybe slight tweaks on the margin. But then from a consumer perspective, maybe there's a lot of buzz initially. And a lot of talk, but ultimately, maybe the product isn't that differentiated. It's very simple. It's good product. You know, these are good labs, but is it really differentiated? Is it solving a pain point in the same way that maybe some other products are? You're starting to see in the beauty industry a lot of these, again, not all, but some of these celebrity different brands maybe have a harder time scaling after a certain point when the buzz is over and people are maybe coming back to consumers saying, wait a minute, you know, is this product really differentiated or can I find something better out there? Let's talk about trends and 
I guess, what you're most excited about within the spaces you particularly cover? You know, that's an interesting question for us to answer, but I'm going to first give you a little bit of color on how we think about the world, because I think most of our brethren in consumer growth equity investing do a great job, but they have a very different approach than we do. Most of our competition are very theme-focused and thematic, and they have a point of view that, hey, you know, because of sustainability reasons, animal cruelty reasons, health reasons, plant-based dairy alternatives are going to be huge. We should make an investment in that because of the tailwinds. I think that's how most people think about the world. We do not. And the reason for it, and look, I think these trends are critical. I think our knowledge of them, I would put up against others. But I think our point of view is that often these trends, if you're the very first one to identify them, I think you can really benefit from them. But oftentimes what happens is that investors' appetite almost exceeds the development of some of these categories. And I think as an investor, sometimes you have to find yourself in a situation where you say, hey, I'm a huge believer in this trend, but maybe we have, as an investor base, our appetite and interest in this trend has exceeded how much the category has developed. And so where we have found more success is maybe paying less attention to the trends and in some ways trying to zig while others are zagging, where we say, okay, let's be focused on trends, but really let's be more focused on companies, bottoms up. And can we identify opportunities where maybe a amazing founder is swimming upstream and heading against the trend, but they've created this product that is just really resonating with consumers, that is really differentiated, that is causing consumers to think about the category a little bit differently. And you see a lot of success there and examples of success there where maybe because it's a little bit off the beaten path, there isn't as much interest from an investor perspective and you can find a little bit more of an opportunity. So as a result, we don't spend maybe as much time thinking about those thematic trends. But you know, in terms of where we're interested in, look, I think it's some of the most obvious and some of the most basic, you know, particularly for me within food and beverage, right? Better for you in clean ingredients, people paying attention to their health is a massive trend. And we still have a lot of runway with that trend. And the beauty of it is over time, that same big trend evolves in terms of, okay, what does that mean? for consumers today, because what was healthy 10 years ago might be very different than what's healthy today versus 10 years from now. And I think finding that optimal point for today's consumers is critical because in, in a lot of cases, some brands are focused on things that are maybe overly healthy where, hey, maybe in 10 years, there's going to be a big market for that, maybe not today. And so finding that right balance of how can we find brands that are giving consumers a version of something that is healthier than what they're consuming today is a material step forward. But still, ultimately, for example, in food and beverage, at the end of the day, it has to taste good. If someone's going to eat something consistently, it has to taste good. So how do you give them something that's better, healthier, but still something they can consume consistently? So that's obviously a huge trend. Sustainability is a big trend. Now, from my perspective, I think consumers, what they will tell you and describe as their appetite for sustainable products maybe exceeds what they actually do with their wallets. And so I think it's something that is a very interesting trend. And I don't mean to paint every consumer with the same brush, but I think it's something that you can't just bet on that. Where we get excited is, okay, is there a really cool sustainability story here, but with a great tasting product? Or is there a you know, cool sustainability story, but with something that's fundamentally different? And can you pair it with something that allows the consumer to say, you know what? I would have loved this product anyways, mm -hmm. but now it has a sustainability story. Now I really love it. Now I'm really going to tell my friends. Now I'm going to go all in on this story. I think another one is 
super premium products. You know, coffee is an interesting example where you had the first wave of Folgers, then you had Starbucks take over the world with a second wave, then you had a third wave with the Stumptowns and the Intelligences of the world. And I think if you look at their price points, they keep redefining what premium looks like and, and keep improving the quality of the product. And I think in a lot of cases, sometimes people worry that prices have gone too high, but really consumers, particularly if it's an authentic story, they understand why they're paying up for the product. They tend to love those and they really tend to be loyal consumers of those products where in difficult environments, for example, you know what we're going through right now, what you see is private label, the bottom end of the category tends to do well. The super premium, just phenomenal products that consumers want to pay out for do well. And it's that middle that gets squeezed. And so that premiumization and constantly trying to say, okay, is there a way to really explore super premium? And can we just give consumers something that is fundamentally better is a trend that we think is a big one that still has a lot of runway in so many categories. We never covered the start of your firm and it was presumably a spinoff or it was it simply you and your partners decided to move on and maybe have other people join in? How did it actually all work? Yeah, the start of the firm really was a generational transition and it probably was you know the best generational transition in private equity, which is a testament to our former partners. They decided to retire and were really supportive of us of wanting to start a new firm with uh, our own legacy. And it's been a, a really fun, fun journey. It's eight of us that spun out of our predecessor firm. And we think is bringing together something that's pretty interesting, which is the passion, hunger, and alignment of eight people saying, hey, we want to do this together. And we have a shared vision for how we want to do this. But also with close to two decades of shared experiences around what is the strategy? How do we invest? Where have we been successful versus not? And so it's been a ton of fun coming together as a group, initially eight, now 16 of us. And so essentially what we do is, and what we've been relatively successful doing in the past, we'd like to think, is being consumer specialists. And as mentioned, not just investing in all of consumer, but investing and focusing just in four subsectors within consumer. And what we're trying to do within those segments is really investing in the best emerging brands in those sectors and really trying to focus on brands that, despite their youth, have already established a really strong bond with the consumer where the relationship is really much more of a love affair than it is transactional in nature, mm -hmm. where that translates to demonstrated and what we hope to see sustained consumer loyalty. And what we're trying to do in those cases then is really partnering with those brands and founders to help them grow the business in what is a very typical investment thesis, which is, hey, how do we help these businesses attract a broader set of consumers who are really dissatisfied with a lot of the one-size-fits-all incumbent brands that tend to dominate these spaces? And how do we help them grow that definition of the customer? without diluting the magic that made those core customers so loyal and passionate to begin with. And hopefully, eventually help transform these emerging brands into must-have strategic assets for large corporate acquirers. And so that path, that journey is the one that we are super fired up about, that we love coming to work every morning and passionate about helping founders achieve those dreams and being able to provide our two cents and, and our help as they navigate that journey. Uh, last two questions as we're coming up on time here. Uh, one is, can you tell us about a person 
who has had a profound influence on you? Yes. I'm guessing this is a typical answer. In my case, it was my dad, because you know he's just had such an impact on me and growing up. And it, it's, it's interesting because I realized this more with the benefit of hindsight, where a lot of the things that I observed that he would do, I try to emulate. And so some of those things are really one is caring. My dad used to work a lot, but when he was home and he would spend time with me, I was the center of his universe. I was the center of the world. He would not be distracted and, and give me really, really high quality time. And that caring that he didn't have to tell me it would show through was something that really stuck with me. I mentioned a hardy work ethic. You know, I remember almost every night he'd spend a lot of time with family, but eventually when we're all going to bed, he's in his computer working hard. That passion, that work ethic to try to get better run through walls is something that really stuck with me. And then I would say humbleness of, you know, always being very open-minded, really, really being a good listener, really trying to learn from other people is something that I try to emulate as well. So I would say for sure, my dad. Excellent. Okay. Last question. Can you tell us about a cause charity or other endeavor that you're passionate about? Yes, a charity, an, an NGO, really, Glasswing International, that a, a really good friend of mine from growing up in El Salvador started. It's just an amazing organization. Selena, who's the, the founder, started it with her husband and brother, had been a humanitarian, had been very successful, really wanted to make an impact closer to home in El Salvador, where we grew up, and has built this amazing organization. They've now grown to, I believe, uh, having a presence in 12 different countries in Latin America having impacted over 2 million people, really with a focus on education and healthcare for primarily young children and, and young adults. And where, for me, what really, obviously, it's a passion of mine, given I'm from El Salvador, but just seeing the success that they've had, they have a gala every year where they tend to bring up one of the younger adults that has been in their programs for many years. And to see these children who have grown up in war-torn countries where there's a lot of gang violence, a lot of poverty, very, very difficult situation, grow up to be these amazing young adults that are so passionate, curious, successful, and frankly, just have these amazingly optimistic and positive views on life that you would not expect from someone who grew up in their environment. Uh, just being able to see these constant examples of the impact they're having, maybe not on a massive scale, but really making huge differences and in people's lives in what otherwise is a very difficult environment is uh, I'm just incredibly amazed by how successful Selena has been. And it's something that I, you know, I'd love to support and however I can, but just an amazing charity. If people ever want to look it up, Glassman International, they're awesome. Fantastic. Well, Juan Marcos, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a wonderful conversation. RJ, this has been fun. Love chatting about this stuff. So appreciate you having me on. Mm -hmm.